I do a little bit of recap so um, we can revisit all millennialism and then we'll look at post-millennialism today. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, morning. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to consider uh, what is oftentimes a confusing topic. Pray that you would bless our um, ability to pay attention and to absorb what's being discussed and to interact with your word um, in a way that's profitable and edifying and ultimately glorifying to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I went ahead and threw everything up here ahead of time, so we're not taking the time to rewrite it as I, as I teach it. But um, So you might take a picture afterwards if you want this information, but just to, to recap, this is sort of your key for the timeline. You've got Christ's return. Um, by the way, if you're ever confused about the whole X representing Christ, that is perfectly legitimate. It's based on the Greek. The first letter in the Greek is a key, which is what that is. So uh, Xmas is is not bad. It's totally fine. Um, you have new heaven and new earth, or our final state represented by the last uh, kind of image of eternity. You have resurrection uh, represented by the upward arrow, final judgment, the throne. And then all these four things that we looked at, and this is what we spent most of our time in last week or two weeks ago, was the passages that are t- uh, attaching specific events or circumstances that surround Christ's second coming. And you can look at those passages again if you want, but, and there's other passages. We just limited ourselves to a few for each one. But you have every nation being evangelized. You have all Israel being saved tribulation, apostasy, and the Antichrist, and then signs and wonders, which I just attached to the return of Christ. So you won't see a four on the timeline, but wherever Christ's return occurs is where those signs and wonders will, will appear on any of these timelines. All right, so as a recap of amillennialism, um, we did look at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32. I would say that, that the confession does not allow for any other view of the end times than amillennialism or postmillennialism. It does not see two different resurrections like premillennialism proposes. So that's, so the big, let me start with the amillennialism, then I'll just explain a few of the differences. Um, But you have the millennial reign is real. It actually is happening, but it's heavenly. So there's no earthly millennial reign. That's where that's why it's called all millennialism, um, all meaning no. So there's no millennial reign on earth, but it is genuine and real and, and wonderful. <laughs> it's heavenly. It's a spiritual reign. You have the present age um, representing the age between Christ's first coming and his return. So it's this entire present age. What's happening during that present age is the same thing as the millennial reign. You have every nation is being evangelized and always has been since his first coming. You have all Israel is being saved um, through Christ from the first to second coming. And then the third, the tribulation. We still see tribulation, apostasy, and an antichrist climaxing right before his uh, Christ's return. But that doesn't mean that you don't see small threes all throughout. So the three, in a sense, could be here as well. It's just, I, I put it here because I, I do want to emphasize that we do see a climax happening at the end of the age. 
where there will be a return, uh, a tribulation, an antichrist, and an apostasy. Um, All of that culminating in Christ's return, the throne judgment, uh, the general resurrection of both believers and unbelievers at the same time, and then facing judgment, and then obviously the uh, believers will enter into the new heavens and new earth. The unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire. So, the difference here between amillennialism... Well, does anyone have any questions just about that portrayal of amillennialism? Okay. Differences with postmillennialism. The millennial reign is earthly, and it's being... It's, we're in transition. So, we're moving into a millennial reign from this present age. It's possibly happening now. It's possibly a little bit into the future. There's no real defining moment where the millennial reign begins, but it's a gradual progression towards what is called oftentimes a golden age, sort of a a perfecting. Um, And I'll explain that today. Uh, But the other difference is they put the three, the the great tribulation and the apostasy and the Antichrist, all at the very beginning of this present age and A.D. 70 or just prior to A.D. 70, which is when Jerusalem was destroyed. So they attach, um, they believe Nero is the Antichrist, the Roman emperor. Um, A few people would say it was at the destruction of Rome, um, that are post-millennial, but for the most part, they, they're in the camp that Nero um, was the Antichrist, that the tribulation was, was all targeted or, or focused upon um, Israel. It was the judgment of Israel. Okay, so, so there's some problems to that, and I'll explain that today. But uh, the other difference, they put the second, most of them put the second, meaning all Israel will be saved right at the end, and they have every nation being evangelized happening throughout the age. But you notice the difference here. I put the arrow from starting down here and going up because it has a gradual increase. It's having a greater impact, not just spiritually where the church is growing, but it's having a greater impact upon the culture, upon the suppression of evil. So Christianity, basically the world is being Christianized. That's how a post-millennials would describe their view. They would say the world is going to progressively become more and more Christianized. Okay? And the, everything else is the same. You've still got Christ's return, the great throne, and a general resurrection happening all at the same time. Um, and then the eternal state. So now you see the biggest difference with the premillennialism is it places the millennial reign after his return. So you have... Every nation being evangelized, just like the others, uh, they don't necessarily, premillennialists would agree with amillennialists that it's not necessarily becoming, the world's not necessarily becoming more and more Christianized, but evangelism is taking place, and in the end, every nation will be reached. The impact that it will have in each nation is up for debate. Okay, number two, they, they would mostly see all Israel being saved right at the end, um, and then you have Tribulation, the apostasy, and the Antichrist, just like all millennialists see it right at the end. Okay, the biggest difference, I mean, the biggest difference is the millennial reign coming after 
Christ's return, but also they separate the resurrection. And this is something that I believe is, well, I mean, it, it, they get it from Revelation chapter 20, but it's the only place you could, you could make that interpretation because nowhere else does it ever refer to a resurrection being distinct for believers and unbelievers. Okay. All right. So that's, I just wanted to put the main historical views. There's also still a fourth view, dispensational premillennialism, which goes further to separate Christ's return into two sections. It makes a, it, it adds a return of Christ right here and then puts the tribulation, the number three, in between those returns so that the church is raptured up and, and, and gone or absent from the earth during the tribulation. Then he returns with believers, and some believers are, are all the believers at that point are resurrected, enter into the millennial reign with him. The rest of it's the same. Okay, so they, they, the problem with their view is they not only have two resurrections, they also have two returns of Christ, sort of a secret return and then a, a more visible return of Christ. And for the most part, that's what probably all of us have, have just sort of assumed we've been taught growing up. So I'm going to try probably spend two weeks on that view alone, um, just to kind of help us wrestle with some of our understandings that are probably clouded. All right, so let me recap. Yes. Correct. It does not see two resurrections. The Westminster? No, premillennialism existed. They called it chiliasm. It was the idea that the millennial reign was going to be an earthly reign of Christ after his return. And so chiliasm was taught pretty early on. I mean, there were views, interpretations of Revelation 20 that held that view. It was just rejected by the reformers. Um, So most reformed people fit into one of these three categories, okay? There are, there's, there are, uh, there's a large camp of reformed people who are premillennial, but they're generally not confessional. And if, you, if you've studied or, or considered who that would be, it'd be guys like John MacArthur. Um, anyone that fits in that category, Steve, uh, well, I, don't, I, I wouldn't say I know all the other guys that fit that category, but basically they're, they're, they, they believe the five points of Calvinism, and that's what makes them reformed, but they're not confessional, and they, they reject a lot of the other things in the confession, this being one of them. So amillennialism, postmillennialism would be confessional. Now, if someone were to take an exception and to join our denomination, like a pastor would say he's historic pre-mill, I don't think it would, it would preclude him from becoming a, a pastor in our denomination. I don't, this doesn't strike at the vitals of the faith. Um, but they would obviously have to take an exception to that chapter. And so far, I haven't seen that. I don't know of any pastor who takes an exception to that chapter. Just a question, Pat. I don't want to derail us too far, but uh, your daughter Maya is showing up. I yeah. Yeah. 
Well, certainly the number of the elect is growing, right? So you could make that case a number of ways, but um, but no, generally they believe it's a a world transformation, like because because they get their idea from prophecies that speak of what I would say as referring to the new heavens and new earth, but they would say, no, this is referring to the millennial reign. So they see what's taking place as an earthly reign as having an impact upon morality. and how, you know. So we're, we're going to talk about that today um, because I, I do think that historically that, that's a hard, hard argument to make. It's a hard case to make because it's really all over the map. Yeah, I, I would say that's probably true. Postmillennialism. So <laughs> the reformers were, were all postmillennialists. Um, they didn't really have a category or a, or a, a distinction from amillennialism, although this has, has existed since Augustine. So this is not a brand new interpretation. But, it's, but it, um, it was always just kind of called postmillennialism. So postmillennialism, meaning that the millennial reign was going to be a... a an earthly reign was very popular all the way up until World War I. And then when they realized, okay, this is, this is not getting better, I think a lot of people did change um, at that point, started reconsidering. In fact, premillennialism got very popular with the kind of the, the reforming of Israel, Israel returning to the land. They said, oh, this does sound very familiar. This does look familiar to, to prophetic, um, you know, interpretations by premillennialists, and so that's become the dominant camp um, today, basically because of what happened in history. So history has a pretty strong impact upon how we view eschatology, and it should. It, it does because it's related to history, but. Um, but obviously, all of us want to find our primary argument from Scripture, not from what's happening in the news. So, uh, the question is, premillennialists or dispensational premillennialists? Even a dispensational premillennialist? Yeah. I think a dispensationalist might get a lot more flack at an ordination exam than a pre- historic premillennialist. Um, but as a member, no, yeah, you could, there's no difference with membership in the church. But I was referring specifically to a pastor coming in who wanted to teach. I would say if I held to a historic premillennialist, I don't think it would have pre, you know, prevented me from becoming a pastor in the PCA. If I was dispensational, they would say, you've got some really radical differences in your views of the old covenant, the new covenant. Like it's not just eschatology that that's going to impact. It's going to impact your reading of scripture in general. Um, so that's why we're going to probably spend more time on, on that view. Don't jump ahead on that one. <laughs> it's not just scripture, which is should be what it's our I mean, I think it's how Vern said it's a method of interpretation. Right, hermeneutics. Probably, yeah. I know of a lot of historic premillennialists 
that are all-male. Or, or most all-male, well, I don't know. I would be speculating. I think most of them are pre-mill or dispensational. Yeah, yeah. No, usually it's the Reformed people because they've been reading guys that hold to those positions, you know. I mean, that's... Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me, let me do a review of amillennialism, then we'll get to postmillennialism. I do want to try to get to explain postmillennialism and critique it, which will answer some of the questions you guys have been raising. So what's already happened in amillennialism is the millennium of Revelation 21 through 6 is figurative. It's heavenly. Uh, we are currently in the millennial reign. It's in the sense, what, what we would say is, I personally am not in the millennial reign, but if I die, I go to he- my soul enters into that millennial reign with Christ. It's my reigning with Christ in heaven. Okay? So we are currently in the time frame where the millennial reign is taking place, and it's obviously been well over a thousand years, so the thousand years is figurative. Um, Satan has been bound, and shortly before Christ's return, he will be released for a little while. You get that from Revelation chapter 20 as well. Uh, The binding of Satan is Revelation 21 through 3, And then the reigning of the saints is verses 4 through 6. The release of Satan for a little while is right below that, Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. So you have, what is Satan bound from in verses 1 through 3? He is bound from deceiving the nations any longer. Okay, so we would say Satan has been bound really from Christ's defeat of him at the cross in his first coming. He's been bound from preventing number one from taking place. He's bound from preventing the nations from being evangelized. In the end, he'll be released for a brief period where he will gather up nations, uh, soldiers with him, and again, deceiving the nations. And then they'll enter into that final battle um, at Christ's return, where, where he will be defeated. So where is Christ? He's obviously reigning in heaven. The soul of every believer who has died is at present reigning with Christ. You hear me talk about that all the time, right? Christ is seated on his throne. He is sovereign. He is Lord over all the earth, even now. He is, you know, we are all... we. We uh, are all responsible for worshiping him and glorifying him. All right, so these are, this is language you've heard before. You're familiar with this. The souls of believers at their death, in verse 4, they come to life and are now alive in the presence of God. So that, that resurrection in verse 4 is figurative in the sense that it's related to them coming to, li- to life in heaven. Now, the strongest critique of that is that that verb is almost always referring to a bodily resurrection. Okay, so if verse 4 of chapter 20 is referring to a bodily resurrection, then we should all be postmillennial, basically. But if, if it's not, if it's referring to them coming to live with Christ, 
their soul coming to live, then that, then, um, then we can get past that word. The word itself only occurs in Revelation that one time, right, in this passage. So to say that it's always bodily resu- resurrection, well, you could say that of, in, in other passages, but they're talking about the bodily resurrection of Christ, or they're talking about the bodily resurrection of believers. Um, when they're talking about it in Revelation chapter 20, it is unique because he calls it the first resurrection, right? And he doesn't, he doesn't um, which, is, which is why premillennials would say there's two resurrections. You have the first, and then what they would, they would say it implies there's a second resurrection. Um, I know that gets a little confusing, and that is, like I said two weeks ago, that is the biggest challenge to understanding amillennialism. But it fits the overall structure or, or worldview um, of every other passage of Scripture, and I think it harmonizes. We can harmonize it in this way. The souls of believers at their death come to life and are now alive in the presence of God. The rest of the dead who aren't believers will not come to life and stand before the presence of God until the final judgment. Right? So that's how I would read verses 4 through 6 of Revelation, uh, chapter 20. Okay, so here's how Kistemacher explains it. He says, If the souls of the ones who were beheaded, which is the subject of those who are reigning with Christ in verse 4, if the souls of the ones who were beheaded came to life and now reign with Christ in heaven, then John conveys not the thought of a physical resurrection, but the passing from physical death to a glorified life in heaven which is perfectly consistent with understanding the word in the sense that it, the word only means come to life. Right? We, we've attached resurrection to the bodily resurrection of Christ, but the word itself just means come to life. So your, your soul comes to life in heaven. Right? And those who died but did not come to life experience the exact opposite of the saints who are with Christ. Now here's a, a couple of arguments for why I hold this view. You have the language of already, not yet, all throughout it, right? You have the millennial reign already happening, and yet there's a not yet aspect of it. It's still future. Um, One, you have the evangelization of the nations already happening, happening in the present, and also um, happening in the future. Same with two, and, and then the three would have this future aspect, but also already happening at several stages throughout history. So Christ already reigns in victory, but a more glorious and perfect reign for all eternity awaits his return in the new heavens and new earth. So you could look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there's this already not yet component to eschatology to end times it's we've already experienced it we're we're needing we need to be ready and prepared for it and yet it also awaits a future and final culmination 
Again, we can say the same thing about evil. Evil has not fully and finally been eradicated. We still experience evil in our own lives, right? Sin, um, even from within the church. Only upon Christ's return at the end of the age will the wheat be separated from the tares or the good fish separated from the bad fish as, as Jesus explains in Matthew 13. So you have those parable, parables fitting here. Yeah. Where does the uh, tribulation fit in with the all millennialism? So the great tribulation. At the no, it would be after the tribulation. So tribulation happens right at the end of this present age, the great tribulation. We, again, would say tribulations have occurred throughout, and that's based on John's language in 1 John chapter 2. He says that the Antichrist is coming. In fact, many Antichrists have already come. So, right. Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're embodiments of the Antichrist. They truly are anti-Christian, and they are... Uh, there have been many occasions of apostasy and tribulation against the church, opposition against the church. Some of this will make sense as well when in the sermon, because I'm going to talk about interpreting Revelation and, and the four basic modes of in, interpreting. Um, and that'll help, I think, with a, a better understanding of all millennialism as well. But uh, the signs of the time... The, the events that are described in Matthew 24 um, and 29 through 30, and then other signs. There's, there's a ton of passages that speak of the signs of the times. We see some of those things kind of happening, but there will be a climax, right? Obviously, the, the moon hasn't turned blood red, um, and things like, like that haven't happened yet. So those things will climax at Christ's return. So here's the... Huh? Oh, I don't know. Oh, is, that's probably what futurists commonly interpret as, as uh, fulfilling this prophecy, but I would say it doesn't. All right, what occurs at Christ's second coming? The bodily resurrection is immediately followed by the final judgment, which immediately fo- is followed by the new heavens and new earth. So there are several passages that refer to a general resurrection of believers on the last day. Let's just look at John chapter 11, verse 24. You could look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, John chapter 5, uh, John 6, uh, John chapter 11, verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Um, you have this last day language of, of throughout um, tied to the general resurrection. Uh, it begins actually in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. You have the um, Old Testament prophecy about the resurrection happening. I believe it says on the last day there as well, but let me look it up. Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some 
to shame and everlasting contempt. So it doesn't mention last day, but it does talk about there being a general resurrection. Some going to everlasting life, others going to judgment. It doesn't talk about them being, there being a great gap between them. Okay, so you have general resurrection of believers and unbelievers on the last day. You have the transformation and glorification of living believers. That comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as well as Philippians 3. All believers are either raised at the second coming, they're either raised, or if they're still alive, if, if they're you know, one or two here, they're still alive at his return, then they're transformed at that point. So, in fact, it says that the resurrection precedes the transformation because whatever that, uh, Paul is trying to encourage the Thessalonians that, they're not going to, that, that those who died already are not going to miss out on Christ's return. Right? They're, they're going to actually be raised before the others are transformed. So you can look at that at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. No, no, I would say generally the same time. It's just kind of like the bodies are raised and then, and then they're all sort of brought up to meet Christ in the air. And he, he, he completes his descent and begins the final judgment. All right, so that's what happens at his return. All right, that's all millennialism in a nutshell. Let's look at postmillennialism. Any questions before we do about all millennialism? Because I have 15 minutes. Dad. So in other words, believers, if they're alive during the tribulation, they will go through the tribulation? Yes. In fact, according to all three of these views, the only view that believes the tribulation happens after Christ's return is the dispensational view because, because they separate Christ's return into two events. Matt? No, so the binding of Satan is, is specifically related to his prevention of the gospel entering into every nation. So no, it would not prevent other satanic activity. They're in hell. They're in hell, but it's not the final eternal state of hell, the lake of fire. They're in, they're, but, it, but they're, you know, they would see an analogy of them in torment and suffering, just like the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. So, all right, post-millennialism. 15 minutes to get you there. Um, they read Revelation 20, 1 through 6 in this way. Some believe that Satan is bound already. That would include B.B. Warfield, Lorraine Bettner, Marcellus Kick, and others believe a future binding will occur. Men like Norman Shepard, who actually apostatized from Christianity. He's, he's a Roman Catholic now. Um, so that's a knock against post But no, I'm kidding. 
Um, I'm sure all millennialists have done that too. But some believe that Satan is bound already. I'd say the, most of them believe that. Others do be, see a future binding of Satan. Verses 4 through 6, which speaks of the believers reign with Christ. Some believe that it refers to the souls of deceased believers who are presently reigning with Christ in heaven. That's, again, B.B. Warfield and Lorraine Bettner. They interpret Revelation 20 in the exact same way as amillennialists do. Okay, B.B. Warfield and Bettner. That's why it's very confusing to say where did amillennialism begin. I mean, a lot of postmillennialists called themselves postmillennialists but had an amillennial view. Um, and, and so Warfield and Bettner, um, well, I'll get to them, but others believe that it's a reference to living and regenerated believers reigning with Christ on earth, which is what I've put it here. I would say that's the predominant view of postmillennialists. Um, so Kick and Shepherd hold to that view. So what's already happened, the tribulation occurred in, in Jerusalem in the first century AD. They would say what happened in Matthew 24 already all took place. Um, they believe that the Antichrist is Caesar Nero, um, and who appeared in the first century AD, so who was reigning during that, during that time. And you, they would, so they would take 2 Thessalonians 2 as a reference to Nero. All right, so what must happen before the second coming? They believe that numbers 1 and 2 will take place before Christ returns. So... Every nation will be evangelized. They look at various psalms and prophets speaking of Messiah's universal reign as, as future, but prior to the second coming. And then all Israel is saved right at the end. Almost all of them see that as happening in a, in a single event right before, or at least just prior to Christ's return. So the present age is gradually merging into the coming age. Christianity gradually increases in size and in influence so that there is a lengthy period of peace that precedes Christ's second coming. Christian principles will be increasingly accepted and practiced. Sin will gradually reduce, though never quite eliminated in this life. When you ask what, kind, how, what percentage of the earth is kind of Christianized or what percentage of every nation has become Christian, there's not really, they don't know. But I would say most of them think it's going to be a vast majority. So it would be over 50%, right? That's a significant number and, and radically uh, different than anything we've seen in history. Um, so Christian principles increasingly accepted and practiced, sin gradually reduced. Any kind of setback against that really works against postmillennialism, I think. So the Reformation was a great time to see and some every, every awakening or revival is a great time to see the postmillennialists get excited. And yet, every kind of setback that takes place, um, discouraging, discourages, uh, or I think is a, a knock against this view. Sin gradually will be reduced, although never quite eliminated in this life. So they believe physical and spiritual prosperity will increase. Not just spiritual, but physical prosperity will increase. Bettner even suggests that the world will be truly Christianized and sin will, re, will be reduced to neglig, negligible proportions. Okay, sin in general of unbelievers will be reduced to negligible proportions. So what occurs at Christ's second coming? Again, it's the same as amillennialism. However, just prior to Christ's return, they do see a brief increase of evil happening. 
Because they have to, right? Revelations 20, Revelation 20, verse 7 says Satan will be released for a short time to deceive the nations. So they would say, although this present age is gradually increasing and, and entering into this golden age, there's still a moment where number three will kind of happen again. A brief, small time of deceive, deceiving right before Christ's return. Um, and, and I think that, that it does disrupt, obviously, that golden age, but it doesn't negate their view of the millennial golden age. So let me critique that now, and then, and then if we have some time, we'll have, I'll open it up for questions. All of the prophecies that picture the final state of the new heavens and new earth, I would say, are not referring to the millennial reign, but the eternal state. So they would take a lot of the prophecies of the Old Testament as earthly having, having effects on our morals and having an earthly impact, they would say, yeah, that has to happen here on earth. And I would say, yes, it does happen here on earth in the new heavens and new earth, right? If there, if there were no new earth, if heaven were just ethereal or were just in the heavens, it were just spiritual, then I would, I would be a post-millennialist because I would say that there are too many passages that speak of Christ reigning in an earthly way, right? Having an impact upon physical beings, human beings, so, but because I believe this is a new heavens and new earth, it, it totally makes sense to interpret those views. And, and here's, um, here's some of the, the verses I, I want to point to. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, they would say is a reference to... to an earthly reign. You have the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Um, so you have a, an earthly representation um, of opposition against Christ. And verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 2.8. The ends of the earth will be your possession. Now, the question is, when does that happen? Does that have to happen before Christ or before Christ's return, or can it happen after his return? Well, I would say Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 fulfills that, or could be an example of the fulfillment of that. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He's, he's currently reigning. They have He's received all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, it's an earthly earthly reign now, but at his return, it will become... uh, It's a heavenly reign now, but at his return, it'll become earthly. Then you have Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. Isaiah 2, 4 says... He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their, their swords into plowshares, uh, plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They say, see, that's a time of peace. Very clearly, nations are setting down their weapons. They're turning them into farming tools. Right? So this, this is a time of peace. I would say that that reflects this, the peace that we experience in the new heavens and new earth. Revelation chapter 22, 
verse 2, which speaks of the tree of life having fruit that bears uh, 12 different kinds of fruit that is being um, produced every month. And, it, and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. Again, very, it's, it's just a generic way of talking about the peace. Well, not generic, a very vivid description, imagery of the peace that we will enjoy in the new heavens and new earth. Here's the, the problem. If you want to say that everything is related to this earthly reign before Christ, well, some of the passages in some of the prophecies are very clearly not referring to a golden age, but to a perfect age. 11 verse 9, they shall, uh, Isaiah 11 verse 9 says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So for the earth to be full of the knowledge of the Lord, there, that's not going to happen in any kind of golden age. No post-millennialist believes that that, is, that that is going to happen, that there will be 100% knowledge of the Lord. No one says that. But the new heavens and new earth, of course, everyone will know the Lord. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, again, speaks of a perfect age. It says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. <clears throat> where, where is that true? That's only, that can only be true in the new heavens and new earth, not in, in, in any kind of partial fulfillment in a golden age. Uh, again, later on in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, you have, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So Isaiah 65 is oftentimes used as a reference to a kind of a, an earthly reign where there's still, there's still death. Because in verse 20 of 65, it says, No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And they say, well, see, there's still sin and death in the, in the new heavens and new earth. Well, they would... They, that can't be true. The new heavens and new earth is absolutely after his return. So this is com- combining eschatological visions here. But the verse 17 is very clearly speaking of a, a new heavens and a new earth that has to uh, involve uh, the forgetting of the former things and, um, and the enjoyment of, of Christ. So in a, in a perfect sense. Um, all right, let me go on to the next critique. Interpreting the Great Tribulation. They want to say that the Great Tribulation happened in AD 70. So Matthew 24 deals with the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world events. It speaks of the signs of the times in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And what we have in this description of the Great Tribulation Is, a, is some language in verses 29 and 30. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So obviously, all of that's happening at the very end. Christ returns, but it says immediately after the tribulation, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and all of this will happen. So there's no suggestion here of a 2,000-plus year gap between the great tribulation and Christ's return. Uh, you have the same problem with the language of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 um, creates a, a, another probably even bigger challenge. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. So don't be deceived. The, um, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, will not happen until the rebellion happens first. Again, there's no great gap between this great apostasy and Christ's return. Lastly, as if you go back two weeks to the sermon when I dated Revelation, the dating of Revelation makes most sense if it was after Nero, if it was in around, what did I say, in the 90s. So it's not, it doesn't make as much sense if it was written in 69. There's very little evidence of that to support it. Okay, so if you want all of the reasons for that, you'll have to look at the sermon. Thirdly, Revelation 21 through 6 doesn't support a postmillennial view. If you think that amillennialism has a challenge with Revelation 20, postmillennialism has an even greater challenge with the passage. Um, if verse 4 refers to regenerated believers, why does John refer to the souls of those who have been behead, beheaded? If it's referring to them being regenerated here on the earth and entering into that, that kind of millennial reign gradually... Well, then why does it speak of their being beheaded physically and their souls are, are the, the content of the discussion in, in that passage? The souls of those who have been beheaded um, wouldn't make any sense if you're talking about an earthly uh, millennial reign um, prior to the resurrection. Okay? It makes sense in a premillennial view because, it, because that millennial reign happens after a resurrection. Okay. Doesn't make sense for an amillennialist. Um, again, this is the only passage in Scripture that deals with um, that deals with the millennial reign of Christ. So, postmillennialists who take an amillennial view of the passage, who speak of the millennial reign happening in heaven, they literally have no other verse to turn to to speak of a golden age. They don't have any reason to believe in a future millennial reign. They might as well just be amillennialists. So, I do think I, I think that that once they take Revelation 20, 1 through 6, in the same way as, as I do, they really don't have a verse to, to turn to. Um, in verse 4 uh, of chapter 20 of Revelation, it refers, if it refers to regenerated believers, then the souls who've been beheaded don't make sense. And the rest of the dead in verse 5 um, is referring to those who have died, right? The rest of the dead, that's another phrase that wouldn't make any sense. So living believers reigning for a thousand years while alive and regenerated, that's not a very long reign if it's kind of like you're living for a thousand years with Christ or until you die. 
because most don't live to even be 100, right? So if you're reigning with Christ, your, your reign is pretty, pretty short. It's a pretty limited reign. Now, if you're talking about it just kind of being the reign of the church in general, um, then, then you have even, I mean, I don't, again, you're, you're interpreting, you're putting your view into the passage. You're not, you're eisegeting the passage, not just reading the text. Um, lastly, if Satan is bound in the future, but the reigning of regenerated believers is present. So there's a few that believe that the, the Satan is bound in the future, but his reigning is, but the believers are reigning currently. Well, then what you have is two different millenniums because Revelation 20 speaks of the thousand years It says in verse 2 that the dragon was seized, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he's bound for a thousand years. So he's bound for that thousand years. Now, if you're, you're saying that that's a, a different and distinct period from the reign of believers because that's, in a, that's a future thousand years, but the reign of believers is present, well, then what you have is a thousand years of reigning with Christ that is separate from the binding. But but the passage doesn't indicate those are separate. In fact, it uses, it puts an article in front of millennial, so it's talking about the thousand years, and it says it in both passages, which indicate that it's probably talking about the same time period. Okay, so, let me, I don't have any time here, but let me give you the last argument, and then we're done. Postmillennialism doesn't fit historical reality. We've already kind of described that, discussed that, but Genesis 3.15 is true throughout history. Right? The seed of the woman will be, um, at war with the seed of the serpent. Right? There's a spiritual warfare that's taking place throughout history. That's, that's always going to be true. Uh, the tares will always be growing up alongside the wheat. There's not this gradual thinning out of the tares so that the wheat can be more prosperous. Matthew 7, 13 through 14, doesn't speak, it speaks of only a few believers entering through the narrow gate, whereas the gate of destruction is wide. Doesn't talk about that gate becoming wider over time. Second Timothy three and four all speak of the last days, including uh, all of the sin and rebellion that is described in Second Timothy. So a future tribulation, apostasy, and antichrist all create undue tension for a postmillennialist because it upsets this progression that they're that they they're seeing throughout history. Right. It, it, they, they have to agree that it's happening right before his return, but it, but it does upset their interpretation of history. All right. I'm sorry. Didn't leave you any questions, any time for questions, but if you have any, we'll, I'll try to see if we can save this whole thing. We'll just open it up next week with Q&A on postmillennialism, and then we'll enter into a discussion on premillennialism. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for um, an opportunity to study what has been, what books and volumes have been written about one, one passage of Scripture. Help us to grasp all the things that, that we're trying to take in here and to, to continue to dig deeper and to understand it better and ultimately to come to know you um, in, a, in a more edifying way, that we would be encouraged, we would take this truth um, and, 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 and grow closer to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay.